Support for Talking Art on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Erica Holshue, the assistant director of the German American Heritage Center, about their current exhibit, Who, What, Where? German Costume and Culture, which is on display through the end of August. Hi there, Erica. Hi there, Carolyn. Thank you so much for having me. Now, your title is clever. Where is spelled W-E-A-R, as, as this exhibit is all about German ethnic clothing and costume. But one of the first things a visitor is, is uh, introduced to in your exhibit is the, is the German word trot. What are the origins of this word, and what does it refer to now? Yes. So Tracht is the singular form of Trachten, and Tracht and Trachten just refer to German ethnic dress um, in terms of, you know, the traditional garb that we see, you know, associated with Oktoberfest, like the Dirndl and the Lederhosen. Um, and Tracht actually has its roots in uh, the old Germanic word uh, that refers to to wear something, to wear clothing. That word now is Tragen. Um, so in modern German, you would say, you know, ich trage Tracht. Um, and so now Tracht refers exclusively to German ethnic dress, this cultural dress. Um, and Tragen just means to wear clothes. So the German fashion industry arose out of a desire to compete with the French. Give us a brief rundown of how things evolved historically in Germany in terms of clothing design and manufacturing. Absolutely. So when we look at fashion history and the major players in fashion, we typically tend to think like, like you said, about France. Um, the Louis were really great at creating a French uh, fashion uh, marketplace in terms of weavers, um, you know, designers, um, sewers, all, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and the French and the Germans had a bit of a tumultuous relationship. They were always competing with each other. And in the 16 and 1700s, Germany is not uh, a unified state like France is. And in the 16, 1700s, that's when France is really gaining its power, particularly in terms of uh, the fashion industry. Um, so in the 1700s, uh, all the German states are trying to unify themselves. And they think, what is a way that we can unify ourselves um, and, you know, and be a competitor to France that is, you know, is noteworthy and not just, you know, groupings of, of individual tribes, so to say. Um, and one of the ways that they find that is a, a good way to uh, create uh, ethnic unity within Germany is through dress. Um, and so their goal was then to create a, um, an iconic German dress that would be unified across Germany. Um, and that would create a sense of, you know, German identity because before there was not anything considered to be German dress. There was not the Dirndl in the later Hosen. And with this, they're able to create a, a fashion marketplace that competes, you know, at the same scale as the Parisian marketplace in terms of designers, weavers, dyers. Um, they're able to create, uh, you know, a German fashion empire that competes at a global scale. Hmm. So they really invest, so they, de they designed this whole process and then they invested in fashion manufacturing, it sounds like. Absolutely. And 
the investing in fashion uh, manufacturing is really the way that they're able to uh, promote the wearing of these garments because otherwise, how are you going to get these garments? They're specialty garments. They're ethnic garments. They're not uh, found in our typical fashion system because they're not trendy. They're specifically for an ethnic group. Um, so in order to provide that uh, and to kind of create this German identity, they invested in their own infrastructure as a way of, you know, creating this whole system to support uh, German identity through dress. Mm -hmm. So give us a few examples of what what would be considered classic German ethnic dress and then also the types of historic clothing, clothing that you have on display currently in your exhibit. Absolutely. So German ethnic dress um, can be kind of split into two little categories in terms of gender. We have uh, garments that are typically worn by women, and that's usually the dirndl. Uh, and then we have garments worn by men, and that's usually what we think of as lederhosen. Um, and they have their roots uh, historically in historic dress um, that today, um, you know, might seem a little odd to us. But back in the day, it was actually just peasant dress. Um, and so particularly we can see this really in the dirndl. The dirndl is a woman's out ensemble that's um, created out of three pieces, a bodice, um, an, a skirt, and an apron, and sometimes uh, an under chemise or an under blouse. Um, and these really mimic the um, the typical peasant garb of the uh, 17 and 1800s in that the bodice is incredibly tight fitting. And that was standard. You know, if we look at pictures of Marie Antoinette, people in the 1800s, they're wearing stays or corsets, which are incredibly tight um, undergarments on the top half that not only provide uh, support, but they provide shape to the garment. Um, and then, you know, when we think of ensembles with women from the 1800s, the 1700s, we think of really big skirts. Um, so we see those big full skirts. And then, of course, it wouldn't be peasant garb without an apron because that's practical in terms of protecting your garb. Mm -hmm. Right, because they weren't able to wash their clothes very often, and they didn't have very many clothes, correct? So the, the apron really protected the most important portion of what they were wearing, which was the skirt beneath. Absolutely. And particularly for the, the peasant class, which is what the German garb is based off of, um, it was really important to protect their textiles because they textiles are especially during, uh, you know, that time frame, they're incredibly laborious to produce. And so then they're, that means that they're incredibly expensive to acquire. And if you don't have a ton of money, um, you know, washing is just not an option because you might be naked, you know, on wash day. Um, and a lot of the fabrics, you know, the dyes are just not color safe. So the more you wash them, the more that they're going to wear through, um, you know, the color won't stay, the fabric might uh, start to uh, fall apart. So it was really important for the peasant class to protect their garments with things like aprons um, so that they didn't soil them too much so that they could get more life out of them before uh, eventually they would turn to rags. Mm -hmm. So that makes the male clothing counterpart, the lederhosen, more practical, really, since they're made of leather. Absolutely. Um, the leather in particular is a really interesting choice um, in terms of, of garment wear um, because most garments that we see of that time period, um, they're made out of wool, out of silk, out of cotton, those kinds of things that we normally associate with, you know, just everyday fashion. Um, but the later hosen are just leather pants, they're leather shorts, um, and the leather is 
incredibly practical for, um, you know, the peasant working man who, um, you know, is getting a little rough and dirty outside in the German countryside. Um, leather is incredibly tough, incredibly durable. And over time with the, the sweat and the oil and the friction from your body, it will mold to, to your exact body shape. Um, and so uh, we have some examples of Lederhosen that look like they have, you know, never been worn or in a pristine condition. And it's just because leather is such a durable material to work with. Mm-hmm. Well, your exhibit uh, is all in a single room, but it has a really big impact. There's so much a different attire there, and you have a lot of printed material to read. W- where did you curate this from? Where did you get the various uh, clothing artifacts? So most of our artifacts actually came from our own um, collection at the museum. We have a wonderful archive that is just chock full of German ethnic dress and some of which, you know, I was going through and I, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, this hasn't been documented and yet. I, you know, you wouldn't have known from our uh, documentation that this even existed. And so we were really lucky in that standpoint to have that. Um, but we were also lucky in that I reached out to our community and asked for pieces um, of German ethnic dress because I think the story of the person who wears it is an incredible part of, um, you know, the story of dress, of what we wear. Um, and we were really lucky that one pr- family in particular, the Who Studies of uh, Davenport, they had lived in Germany for um, a very long time and they had all of their uh German ethnic dress saved and just ready to go. Um, and so I think that adds a wonderful, um, you know, uh, a nuance to the story here and that you're not just seeing clothes that were once worn. You're also getting the stories of this family through mm-hmm. some of the garments. Yeah. And there's a photograph that's really great of two members of that family wearing their clothing, um, which gives it a very much a, a personal touch. Uh, you know, we keep referring to this as kind of peasant type clothing, but I know the origins came from that, but people from all walks of life, ultimately ended up wearing this. And and one of the interesting parts of your exhibit talks about how this style of ethnic dress ultimately became used as a form of propaganda. How, how did that happen? How did that evolve? Yeah, so this goes all the way back to kind of the invention of German ethnic dress. Um, when uh, the German unification, when people were, um, you know, promoting this and creating the German ethnic dress, they really used it as propaganda to unify people. And their ideology was that um, the German pastoral life was the life that they really wanted to promote and use as propaganda as, you know, this is what makes Germany great. This is what makes a unified Germany. Um, you know, this is what makes uh, the German identity. And so they took the clothing that was specific to um, the peasants in rural Germany and use that um, as a way of propaganda and a way of promoting German identity. to promote this idea of the pastoral, the idyllic German countryside. Um, and that was then later kind of used again as propaganda post um, German unification by the Nazis. Um, because once it was established as, um, you know, this icon of German identity, uh, once the Nazis came to power, they saw that that was already established. And they used that to promote then this idea of the pure uh, Aryan German race. Um, so it was in a sense bastardized um, 
but still, it's still two different ways of using it as propaganda. Um, but definitely the Germ- the Nazis using it as uh, propaganda um, for, you know, this pure Aryan race ends up having long-term effects on uh, the, the German fashion industry and German chalked. Well, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it? That, um, that simply by wearing a particular garment or, uh, you know, you, you, you dress yourself in a certain way and people then make assumptions about you, how you believe politically, what your philosophy is in terms of life. And, um, you know, I suppose, you know, uh, say during the Vietnam War here in the U.S. during the late 60s and 70s, there was a certain protest fashion and, and uh, you know, there's certain, certainly also military like uniform attire in China during the Cultural Revolution. So we've seen this um, around the world. But it is so interesting that it came to be, to, to symbolize so much more in Germany, more than, than, um, that, than what I certainly think about when I see it. Um, how do the uh, contemporary Germans view Trocht? Do you know about that? Absolutely. So post uh, World War II, there was a little bit of tension in terms of, you know, accepting chalked as a garment that could be acceptably worn um, because it got so tangled up with this Nazi uh, narrative. Um, but in the years afterwards, especially after the, um, you know, more towards the 80s, the 90s, um, we've seen a revival of German chalked. Um, it's typically worn now as, um, you know, uh, of a garment of pride in um, big life events like weddings, Oktoberfests, um, you know, spring fests. Um, and it's kind of more of a ceremonial garb now, but Germans are really reclaiming it. Um, there are some communities that still do wear chalked uh, in the everyday, but it's really mostly a ceremonial garb. Um, but more recently, we've actually seen that major fashion houses are reclaiming um, the dirndl, the later hosen, all of the chalked, and really trying to reinvent it uh, in, in a way to reclaim it and to kind of say, hey, you know, this may have had a little bit of a dirty history, but it's still a part of our identity, and we still want to participate in wearing this. Um, and there's some we've highlighted this in our exhibition. It's kind of the the last thought here uh, for folks as they exit the exhibition hall. Um, in that you know there are companies like None, um, and None is a German atelier that produces uh, only dirndls, so only the women's wear, and they use um, African batik cloth in all of their dirndls, which I think is just you know such a stark contrast to this you know narrative of the Nazis you know, especially um, because it really uh, then includes that, you know, Germany is now a diverse place. It's not a place of, um, you know, white supremacy and racism. Um, and it is a place that is using, you know, their German ethnic dress to then include other ethnicities, other minorities in the story of Germany. Mm-hmm. Well, and th- that type of fabric then, seems to me to be way more colorful even like it would infuse i'm guessing some of these these clothes with just a very different aesthetic and different style and uh and that's that's quite funny that's kind of very tongue in cheek to to bring in and and intentionally assimilate other cultures into what otherwise has been a very specific um 
you know, a, a garment that's been meant for a specific ethnic group. So it's, it's quite fun to see it broaden in a way. Absolutely. Um, why do you think ethnic dress tends to be more colorful? And I, I'm, I'm asking this because the Putnam Museum just has just opened up their latest exhibit and it's called The Colors of Culture. Mm-hmm. And um, they are also displaying ethnic textiles and they are more colorful than, than our traditional clothing. Yeah. And, you know, I don't have the exact answer for that, but I can give you my theory on that. Um, and I think it has to do with one the fashion system itself, um, and two, uh, just the communities that are involved and where they are, um, where they are geographically. So to break that down, the fashion system is the system that we kind of associate, uh, you know, in contemporary, uh, fashion of, you know, how we interact with fashion. You know, there is a designer. He says that this black dress is pretty and this is what will make you pretty. So you go and you buy the black dress and it's, you know, produced in a, in a sweatshop, but it's this whole system of, um, you know, usually prescription of what is going to make you beautiful and attractive, what is fashionable, and it relies heavily on trends. And ethnic dress lies outside of um, the fashion system in that it is not trendy, it's specific to a cultural group. Um, and with that, the cultural group uses the dress as a, a way to explore who they are as as a person, as a, a tribe of people, as a greater community, as a country. And so with that, there's a bit more flexibility in that you're not, you know, participating with the trends. So you don't have to say, well, black is slimming, you know, <laughs> um, you can wear fun colors. And so with that, you get to choose the colors that represent your culture specifically. Um, and so, you know, we see that a lot in cultures in South America, they wear these very bright colors that are very representational of the nature around them, of the fauna and the plant life and everything around them. And we see that in German ethnic dress as well. Um, The color palette is colorful, but there are very specific colors that are very intentionally chosen. And they're chosen again to reflect the uh, German pastoral life. Um, There's a big... um, uh, uh, influence of the color green, um, and the color pink. Um, and it's taking cues from the German, uh, countryside, which is very lush, full of green trees and lots of little flowers. Um, and so by taking these kinds of cues, you're able to play with these, these kinds of colors to represent, you know, who you are as, as a community. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's really a lot of symbolism in it then. Um, isn't there? Now, you've studied fashion. You have a master's degree in textiles, fashion merchandising, and design from the University of Rhode Island. What sparked that interest for you? Well, it was actually um, in my last semester of undergraduate studies. I was, um, I, my undergraduate studies were in linguistics and I had always loved culture. And I was told that in order to graduate, I had to take, you know, a, a random gen ed course. And I just so happened to take a course on fashion culture. And I'm sitting in this class. It was like the fr- first week of the last semester of undergraduate. And I was like, oh my gosh, I messed up. I shouldn't have taken linguistics. <laughs> I did the wrong thing. This is what I want to study. Um, and it was just so enlightening to see, you know, because 
typically when we think about fashion, we think about, you know, frivolity and, and consumerism and materialism. But once you break, push that aside, you see that uh, fashion is just full of culture. It's full of politics. It talks about who we are as people. You know, it's a statement to put on your outfit every single day, whether or not you think it's a statement, whether you're just wearing leggings for the day, you know, it says so much about who you are. And uh, to have that door opened up for me, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been missing my whole life. Um, and so that's, I actually just went to the professor of that course and was like, I don't know what's going on here, but I want in. And that's how I got into the master's program at the same university was she kind of talked me through it. And I was like, check, check, check. That checks off all my boxes. Sign me up. This is what I want to do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly a perfect, you know, connection for you being here now with the German American Heritage Center with your background in, um, in German and linguistics and then your master's in textiles and fashion merchandising. And, uh, this, this exhibit certainly was, was, uh, almost designed for you. Um, and you have so many other, uh, events associated with this too. You have several lectures, uh, one on Sunday, May 30th by Hannah Hogue entitled The Durndal Reclaiming German Dress. What can you tell us about the speaker? Um, so Hannah Hogue is a local college student. She's studying at Illinois State University, um, and she is of German heritage. Um, I believe also of Austrian heritage as well, um, which ten they tend to get uh, looped together, but there is a distinction. Um, and as a part of one of her uh, costuming classes, she was given the opportunity to do a historical study on the Durndal and use historical um, uh fashion plates, um, uh, patterns to create her own dirndl. And so it's a project not in just recreating a historical dirndl, but she's recreating it by analyzing, um, you know, the history of German ethnic dress and her personal experiences being a, a German and Austrian American. And she's creating her own version of the dirndl. Um, and she's finishing up that right now. And that will actually be on display soon as a part of the exhibition. And so her talk on the 30th will be about her research, her artistic process and, and everything that came out of it. So I'm very excited to see the final product and uh, to hear all about her artistic process. So you can, you'll be able to see her Durndal that she's made in person, but the lecture is virtual. Is that Yes, is that the lecture is virtual. We're doing all of our programming um, and lectures virtual right now, but the museum is open to the public. Um, we're still following masking and social distancing policies or sanitizing everything. So you can come in person and see the exhibition and see her Durndal, but uh, you can stay from the safety of your home and, and watch all of our programs uh, live. All right. Well, Erica Holshue, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Check out the current exhibition, Who, What, Where? German Costume and Culture up through August 22nd at the German American Heritage Center in downtown Davenport. Admission is $5 for adults, $3 for children, and free for members. More information can be obtained at gahc.org. This has been Carolyn Martin. Talking Art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. Our theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal.